Hi, I'm Amy Porter. Some of you know me as a flutist and a classical musician, others as a professor, and some of you know me as a publisher and arranger. I'm a stepmom, I'm a business owner, and I'm the founder of a couple of nonprofits. And this is my podcast. My core mission as an entrepreneur is to appreciate what I have around me. And then I try and see as clearly as possible how I can help. So let's talk. Let's share information. Let's laugh and sometimes cry over the things that we have to work through in life and in music, in business and family and relationships. Come on into my Porter Flute pod. Welcome to Porter Flute Pod. This is season two, episode six, and it's our friend cast. We're delighted today to sit down and have a great conversation with Grammy Award winning conductor Joanne Folletta. Joanne was in Juilliard at the same time I was. She was a larger than life figure to me. We all have a connection to Joanne somehow, and our producers, Alan J. Tomasetti and Justine Sedke, found some connections as well. You're going to want to stay tuned for this podcast. We adore Joanne. Thanks for being in Porterflute Pod. I'm so glad you're here. Joanne Folletta, we're so grateful that you're here with us. Amy, I'm delighted. Thank you for inviting me. And it's fun to see you again. It's been too long. We missed being together the last summer. Um, I wanted to mention joining us in the podcast are our producers, uh, Alan J. Tomasetti and Justine Sedke. And we're going to start with actually Justine uh, chiming in with some experiences and questions for you because you both are alum. Is that correct? Of Queens College. Yeah, well, I am, Justine. I didn't know you were. I yes. am. And I was so, I didn't know you were either. And um, when we were preparing, I saw the Aaron Copeland School of Music come up. And I just was thrilled because it really is rare for me personally to bump into someone um, from Queens College. And I think that it's a little diamond in the rough and this little hidden gem in Flushing. I really just wanted to briefly ask you about your experience there and, and how it was. Well, you know, Queens College, the music department, the Aaron Copeland School of Music, which was there in the music department, is actually one of the really great music schools in New York, in the country. And I went there for my master's degree. I got my bachelor's at the Manus School of Music, the Manus College of Music. And at that point, Manus couldn't give a master's degree. So they had a, a joint program with Manus and Queens. Um, and it was wonderful because I took some of my classes at Manus, but most of them at Queens. And um, it was, I don't know if you found it this way, Justina, but it was, it was uh, a thriving place. I mean, it was very active. We had great composers teaching, wonderful instrumentalists, a beautiful music hall, I mean, a beautiful concert hall. So uh, those two years were really exciting ones for me. So... So I was very glad to have that opportunity. So we have that in common. Yeah. Um, I When I was there, it was um, Maurice Perez's last couple of years as the music director. And yeah, it's just a really special place. You decided to get a doctorate. Yes, at Juilliard. Well, you know, like most music students, um, you go to music school. And I, and I stayed for a doctorate 
really because I wanted to continue to study with George Mester, who was the teacher then at Juilliard. And he was such an insightful teacher. I mean, he was a very tough teacher. You know, I'm sure you've had those very tough teachers too, Amy. You know, he was very tough and very exacting, very demanding and, and very critical. But I thought, I, I'm learning so much from this man. I wanted to, to stay longer. So I got my master's, uh, I got a, sec, a second master's at Juilliard. Then I said, I don't, I have this, so much I can continue to learn. So I stayed for my doctorate and I'm so glad. I mean, I owe so much to George Mester for my time with him there. And, uh, but as you said, when you graduate, what happens, you know, and it's, I've talked to a lot of conductors um, during this period saying that, you know, you really have to draw the blueprint of your life. You know, you draw it yourself. You know, you've got like this blank page in front of you and you take up your pencil and it better have a big eraser on it because if your life is always changing. You think you're going this way, but you wind up going that way. So um, while I was in Juilliard, I, I um, actually, um, uh, got a position in Denver, in, in, uh, in Colorado. And since I, I was studying for um, a doctorate, I could sort of go back and forth. I didn't have too many classes. I had mostly work I had to do so and, and lessons. So, so I started to work in, with the Denver Chamber Orchestra. And, and I just, I learned for the first time what, it's, what it means to be a music director, what it means to work with people, what it means to sort of take care of an orchestra, help it grow make difficult decisions, pick repertoire, pick soloists, all of those things. And um, that was the beginning of my first, my first experience as a music director. I remember getting my feet wet in the Juilliard Orchestra uh, with you. And it was 1983. And if you go to your website and you look at that picture of you and that amazing hair of yours in 1983, <laughs> You still have amazing hair. So there's Bernstein with his outstretched arms. And if you could enlarge this picture, you would see me sitting in this orchestra. Wow. Wow. And wasn't that a day? I mean, wasn't that an experience with him? Oh, my well, God. He came a few times. And every time yeah. he'd come, the city would show up. We were like, and, and so in 309, there were these places you didn't realize there were, they, they joke about these, these secret places up in 309 where <laughs> when Bernstein showed up we found places in that room for people to sit and it was super crowded and so there you were conducting and I was just so proud of a female to be on the podium and I recognize that uh, congratulations for being one of the the leaders in that respect the other thing I want to say is George Master was so strict that he would tell me the things he was glad that I didn't do so I played for him and I was 17 and I went and I played Brahms and I played for memory. I loved playing for memory. And so he, he crossed his arms, he kept crossing his arms and the Brahms kept happening. And I finished, I got down to the low, the low E and he said, well, that's good. You don't get soft in the low register. So he immediately puts me in orchestra. Oh. So I go to the dean, Brunelli, who you, you line up and there's Brunelli with a clipboard. And, and he says, last name, Porter. <laughs> and Brunelli says, you're in orchestra. Next, you know. And I said, no, it's Porter. And I kept trying to get the clipboard to say it's P and I can't be an orchestra. You have the wrong person. And he said, I told you you're an orchestra. Get out of here. <laughs> that sounds just like Brunelli. <laughs> Ken Fuchs. What was it like to work with your old buddy, Kenneth? 
Well, you know, we, we've kept up our friendship from Juilliard because uh, uh, I knew Ken, of course, because you remember how he worked with the orchestra so often, you know, helping, helping Dean Brunelli. But um, for his the recital, his graduation recital, Ken asked me to conduct a, a difficult chamber piece. It was called Quiet in the Land. And, and I was so thrilled, you know, that he asked me. And so we became friends there and we stayed in touch. And at some point, you know, uh, we, I was able to start to play his pieces with orchestra and it was very exciting. And, and he and I strategized about, okay, how can we get this recorded? Because I know, as you know, that when it's on a CD or at least at that point, what time it was on a CD, people would hear it and they'd know his music and they'd play his music. So he and I made uh, five CDs together in London with the London Symphony, who adores Ken, by the way. Because they, you know, we've been there the, these five times and spent a week with them each time. And they love him. They love his music. He's like a member of the London Symphony family. So um, I'm very proud of our relationship. And I always tell conductors, uh, but this applies to every musician. Make friends with composers that you admire. Play their music. Help them develop. And you learn from them. You know, it's really like being a part of the composer's world. And you certainly know that with Doherty. Michael. Um, so uh, Ken, uh, he won a Grammy for Ken's music. And that was one of the happiest nights of my life when, when Ken won and we were there together. And it was, it was beautiful. Bravo. Congratulations, by the way. Oh, we were all celebrating for you. Well, thank you. Ken and I were just, that, that night was like, no, it's a blur. But it was, it was so happy because he so deserved that. And, and it, it shows how, how the composition process is. I mean, he's been composing for years and developing and creating new sounds. And, uh, um, and we're, we're, we're doing a world premiere of his in Buffalo next year, so next season coming up. So, so uh, that's a very long time friendship. I want to talk about also the difference in programming for, you know, this Buffalo Symphony, really, they have done so many great premieres and, and then the Virginia Symphony, do you have to ease into new music or is the, your community open to also some new music? Well, you know, you're things? right. Every, every community is different. And uh, in Virginia, over time, we managed to do a lot of new we really did uh, world premieres. Um, you know, not everyone in the audience was a fan of new music, but they ca they came to trust us. You know, if we incorporated into a program, uh, they they listened with interest and and uh, and talked about it in the intermission. So that was good. Mm -hmm. Buffalo had a has more of a history of of new music, just as you said, because of Lucas Ross. Lucas was like there was the epicenter in Lucas's time, which was this sort of seventies and eighties. Um, of new music. Buffalo was right at the epicenter because Lucas was there and Lucas would do everything. I mean, he was, composers came from all over the world for Lucas uh, to play their music and um, he was amazing. So Buffalo got used to this sense of new music is important. And then Michael Tilson Thomas was there as music director and, uh, and certainly he, you know, he had has, has his own real interest in, in new music. So, so it's, I think it's part of the culture here. And um, it's been very good for us. And 
also because we have a recording contract with Noxos, we have a certain charge for not from Noxos. They don't want us to record Brahms symphonies. They don't want us to record Beethoven symphonies. They have all of that. They want us to find music that people don't know. Um, and that doesn't need to be contemporary. In fact, they most of our work with them has been early 20th century European music, Eastern European music, um, Sook and Novak and names that people don't really know. Uh, so um, that's been a real journey with our audience too, to play unfamiliar music from the 19th century, late 19th century, early 20th century. But it's been good for us. We've grown a lot as an orchestra. You know, when you live in a community and you are involved with people, not only your musicians on the stage, but you're involved with the, the people in the grocery store, or, you know, people, people that pass you on the street or people, you know, as you go to a friend's birthday party and you meet other people, I mean, you live there and they know you. And in Buffalo, they really value the orchestra. So there's an excitement about the orchestra succeeding. So um, I look back on my 20 years there and I, that's what I'm proud of, of building the relationship between orchestra and community so that, that I feel, even in this difficult time, that our community will always take care of that orchestra. They love it, they value it, they want Buffalo to have a philharmonic. So it's very, very um, important to me and it makes me, feel, it makes me feel like I've done something to help to make that stronger. So, so for me, that's what being a music director is about and it's, it's made a great difference in my life. It's made me feel, feel very joyful to have those relationships. Um, how's your classical guitar playing? Well, I should practice more, but I still keep it up. And, um, you know, it's always going to be an instrument that's close to me because I started, you know, on my seventh birthday. I still remember my first lesson. And it's it was really the, the instrument that led me into the world of music, of course, and into conducting. So um, I love it. I just love it. And, um, you know, it'll always be with me, although most of my time now is spent conducting much, much more than playing. Do you have a favorite piece that you like to play on guitar? No, I, I, I play, I mean, I used to love a lot Renaissance and Baroque music, but I've now branched out to more contemporary music, which I like, you know, new pieces written with guitar. So, and I used to love so much playing with flute. Amy, I mean, you know, when I was in college, I played with flutes everywhere, restaurants, you know, recitals, but you know, it's just, you just do. And it's a perfect duo. It's perfect. I mean, the sound of the flute and guitar, it's, it's beautiful. And I learned a lot of, from accompanying. I mean, I really learned a lot from listening to how flutists breathe, to how they phrase, to how they take time, to how they move their bodies. Because of course, I, my responsibility was, you know, being right with a flutist. And, and uh, I learned a lot. I really learned a lot. People sometimes say, well, you know, what was it like having classical guitars or being an instrument? And I said, well, I, I learned from people I played with. It was so great to accompany people and to listen for the, how they, you know, were breathing or how they moved or to know when I should move it a little bit or when I shouldn't move it or when I should give them time. And, and, and it, was, it was a beautiful education because of course it was so much fun to play with them. So Joanne, bring your guitar to Brevard. <laughs> you know, I thought about that. <laughs> Get ready. Well, you know what we should just mention because this was really, it's like one of the, the greatest weeks of my life is our collaboration there on Trail of Tears. Now I know you've played it a lot, but that was my first time uh, accompanying the piece uh, with the orchestra. And I was overwhelmed by it. I mean, I was just, and, and there were people in the audience who were crying. 
they were so moved by it. And I don't know if you always get that reaction to it, but your commitment to that piece and to the, that tragedy, you know, and making it, making it understandable for the audience, it's so dramatic. And I love to see the faces of the young musicians who were playing it because it was new to them too. They were just, this was all new how to, how to play a piece by Michael Doherty. Um, they were they were just stunned by it. So I'll never forget that. I mean, I, I know I'll get a chance to do it again, but it was just so special to do that in Provide. It's, it's always uh, a handheld experience for me. Mm -hmm. um, I, I walk on and I uh, I look at the concert master literally and, and I say, you ready? <laughs> because I warn them in rehearsal. Uh, one of my lines is I go deep for this. So the last note of the second movement could be between 16 and 22 seconds. And, and they go, ha, ha, ha. And then they realize I'm not kidding because I, flute players know you can hang out on a high F with, if you use your second trill key and go really slow air, you can hold, you can just totally hold. But your heart rate has to be down. The conductor for me is holding my hand. And um, I've said to every conductor, probably you too, okay, let's, let's go, like it's us. And so that's how I, I teach. It's you are so not alone. It's not for solo flute. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you made the orchestra feel that way. And that's a very, very wonderful thing for me to watch for the soloist to include everyone, to look at people in the orchestra, to encourage them, to let them know when something special is about to happen and to see, especially young people, all of a sudden, you know, feel like, wow, this is like a drama unfolding here on the stage. It was really amazing. The storytellers in Tupelo, Mississippi told me that their ancestors were there. Oh. They were I, I could see, I could, yeah. I, I, we had friends from Virginia who they were just sobbed. They, you know, it was just natural. They just understood wordlessly what was happening. Really well. <laughs> to the next time. <laughs> I do have to say, Joanne, I really appreciate you talking about that trust and bringing new music to communities. I grew up in New York and my parents got me just a single ticket subscription to the New York Phil every Christmas. So I would just take the train in from Westchester, go and 
sit there alone. And I remember it was with Alan Gilbert and he would often program new music and world premieres. And I would look at the program and I was like 14, 13, 14. And I'd be like, I don't get it. I don't know what it is, but the exposure was like so important to me. And I trusted that orchestra and I trusted Alan and I trusted everyone there to kind of take me into that world. That exposure was incredibly important, even though I had no idea what was going on and had never heard these things done in music. And I was really there for Dvorak 8 or whatever. Fast forward and now my primary purpose as a musician is contemporary music. And it's it's accumulation of all of that exposure and trust that I had in, in my community group. So thank you. That, that's a beautiful story. I hope you tell that to people because that's, you know, because I find sometimes young people are also quite suspicious of new music. They want to play something that they sort of know how it goes. Uh, but you stayed with it. I mean, you just didn't give up on that and say, I'm not coming to hear this anymore. And look at, look at how you grew into someone who's really now helping composers go to the next level. Yeah. Amazing. It's really important. It's true. Like young people that they want to play and hear like their excerpts done by the greats. You know, I would sit there and be like, well, there's a soprano and she's singing all of this crazy stuff and I don't know what's going on and I think there's electronics and I'm just so confused. <laughs> I would sit there. I remember I was taking the train back to Westchester and I was reading through my program. I was reading about the pieces and a woman sitting across from me, she goes, oh, I was at that concert and I could not get into that first piece. And I was in like eighth grade. I was terrified. I was like... Well, I don't think I understood it, but you know, the Beethoven was great, right? <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, that, that really stuck with me. It was, it was fun. A little Justine on the train. She didn't read in my playbill. <laughs> so, yeah. Right. And so, so here Justine comes in and around semester three and sits down and says, can I get into the place across the way that has all those lights and sounds and Duderstadt Media Center? Yeah. So we get her in there and she does something called Babe World. It was all improv <laughs> and lights and, and, <laughs> but she's like the third or fourth to use Duderstadt Media. When they sit down and ask me, I just kind of say, okay, it's out of my hands. Just don't use foul language and keep your body parts in. And they do. <laughs> but that's what it's all about, right? That's the trust. I trusted you. When I came here to Michigan to say, this is what I want to do. And I trusted that you would hold me up and you trusted that I would do you know, the studio the best that I could. Again, it comes back to that, that trust relationship. So tell me, <laughs> tell me about your relationship because, you know, he's like, I can text her. And I was like, how can you text Joanne? <laughs> so Joanne and I go back when I was the artistic planning associate with the Phoenix Symphony. During the time that after Michael Christie left, we were doing a music conductor search and Joanne was brought on as the artistic advisor, which conducted a lot of our um, concerts, uh, did a lot of our season planning during that transition period. And I can say that she's put up with me for a good amount. <laughs> it, was, it was wonderful. <laughs> so it was almost on a weekly basis that we would be like with each other almost daily pretty much just to, yeah. for yeah. quite some time well we were in touch with each other even when I wasn't there about rehearsal schedules and artist schedules and um even what pieces to put on the program so so um 
it really, really was a, a very stimulating relationship of, of, of putting this program, this year and a half or so together without a music director and sort of being the de facto music director in a sense for that time. And it was exciting. And I'd never lived in Phoenix. Um, and uh, you taught me so much about that part of the country, which is gloriously beautiful in its totally unique way. And uh, I loved it. I loved it. And we drove all over, remember? We were always in the car, it seemed, going somewhere. <laughs> we definitely put some miles on my car that time, but it was a lot of fun <laughs> conversations. But you definitely really introduced me into arts administration, especially programming, like really started to test me on like, okay, we were thinking about these programs for this concert. Okay, why? Like you would always ask me why? What's, what's bringing these out? Are these pieces that you want to do or think about your community, that sort of stuff. And that really elevated my level of thought process of, all right, what do I want versus what does the community need? And that's what really was inspiring to boost me to that next level. Well, you, you are a perfect artistic administrator. I mean, because you, as a musician, as a player, as a performer, you know that part of it, which is very important. But you're also so intelligent. I mean, you know so much about the broad spectrum of our repertoire and and living composers. We were very much involved in that, remember? And, and, and the Which I think Kenneth Fuchs was the one that we chose. So story short, we usually do, uh, there was a commissioning club with the Phoenix Symphony. And this is my first time hearing how you go back even further with Ken. So that was very interesting to hear yeah. that. Yeah. And you know, Ken is a flutist. I don't know if you realize that. No. Yes, <laughs> he's a flutist. And he claims that, that playing the flute really informed how he composes. So um, no, he was a serious flutist. We have fist pumps going on right here. <laughs> <laughs> We're just taking over, you know that? I'm very okay with that. That's okay. I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if the world is ready for that, but it's just somehow happening right now. <laughs> Fast forward now to an ad that I found of you in Macy's. That is the best. I mean, what was well, that? This came, this came out of nowhere, Amy. They just, Macy's was actually at that time, and I'm so glad they, they were concentrating on women in unusual professions. You know, one was a, a, a person involved, a woman involved in the um, a football a football training. Another one was was a, uh, an athlete. I mean, they were all different. Uh, and they, someone at Macy said, "What about the arts? What about a conductor?" I don't know how that happened, but it was obviously someone who knew about orchestral life. And so they asked me to be one of them, and it was really a fun a fun couple of days. You know, getting your hair, you know cut and you know, curled and 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 uh, makeup like I just I I think I wore I had more hairspray I said for, to to my friends more hairspray in one day than I ever used in my life <laughs> just on that day, just on that one day but but it was great and the idea of women in different roles and women leading um was was really very very um strong of Macy's to think about that and project Thank you so much. I mean, this was like a very, very happy morning for me. I mean, to be with you again, to see Alan again, to meet Justine. I mean, it's just, it's been great. And it was fun. You made it fun. It's not typical, you know, sort of 
interview, which is can be so stodgy. This was really fun. Justine, I, I, I have a feeling I'm going to meet Justine in person soon. I just have that feeling. I, I hope so. Me too. Me too. Thank you so much well, for being thank here. You. For, Thanks for talking with us. Oh, I just, you just made my whole week. Thank you so much. Thank you, Joanne Folletta. This was such a great time with all of the wonderful memories and stories that you had to offer us. Join us next time in Porter Flute Pod when our guest is Laura Dwyer in our Stay Well, Play Well platform. We really think that health-related topics, both physical and mental, are important during this time. Laura has been giving courses at Curtis and Juilliard, and she's been my partner for 18 years at the Anatomy of Sound Workshop. We can't wait to see you next time. You can find me at amyporter.com or porterflute.com. And on Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook, I'm Porter Flute. Thanks for being here. I'm so grateful for you.